when I think about artificial intelligence, we are using it already, whether we know it or not, beyond chat GPT. So I'm really excited to see what kind of automations we can do, what kind of learning we can do from our own databases that will help us fundraise better. Hey, my name is Mallory, and I'm obsessed with helping leaders in the nonprofit space raise money and run their organizations differently. What the Fundraising is a space for real and raw conversations to both challenge and inspire you. Not too long ago, I was in your shoes, uncomfortable with fundraising and unsure of my place in this sector. It wasn't until I started to listen to other experts outside of the fundraising space that I was able to shift my mindset and ultimately shift the way I show up as a leader. This podcast is my way of blending professional and personal development so we as a collective inside the nonprofit sector can feel good about the work we are doing. Join me every week as I interview some of the brightest minds in the personal and professional development space to help you fundamentally change the way you lead and fundraise. I hope you enjoy this episode. So let's dive in. Welcome, everyone. I am so excited to be here today with Catherine Scott. Catherine, welcome to What the Fundraising. Thank you, Valerie. It's a pleasure to be here. I am so excited to have a conversation today about your experience using different, using AI as a part of your fundraising work and your fundraising shop. Obviously, the conversation around AI has exploded in the last few months with the wide adoption of ChatGPT. And I think there's a lot of questions about how does AI intersect with our fundraising in a number of different ways. But let's start with just having you tell us a little bit about you and your work. How'd you get in? to fundraising? What do you do just so people can get acquainted with you? Sure. So I'll give you the Coles notes, uh, Mallory. My name is Catherine Scott. I'm based in Toronto, Canada, which is uh, on uh, traditional land belonging to Indigenous people. Uh, and I'm originally from Northern Ontario, which is Treaty 9 territory. And my pronouns are she and her for um, anyone who wants to address me. So I got into fundraising a little bit by accident, which I think is how many people get into the profession. I started with a, an academic background in international development and uh, ended up in working in the nonprofit space in fundraising, and then quickly found a sort of niche area called prospect research and prospect development, which has really suited me because I'm actually able to blend not only my academic training and my fundraising experience in major gifts, playing giving, donor relations, but also with my knowledge management and library science background. Prospect research, which is also known as prospect development, depending where you work, uh, it's essentially doing all the analytical work towards fundraising with an emphasis on major giving and transformational giving, but it could be in any area of fundraising. I love this because I get to look at different areas of fundraising from behind the scenes. And my day-to-day -day work can vary dramatically depending on what kind of project I'm working on. So in this space, I use and rely on a lot of technology and tools to make my job faster, easier, make myself more efficient and make myself more effective. Currently, I work at the Toronto Metropolitan University as a prospect development officer, but I've been in the field for about 15 years. So I've worked at a variety of organizations and in international development, arts, education, health. And I'm also president of APRA Canada, which is a chapter of APRA International. And our professional association brings together people working in this field in a variety of institutions. And uh, we get to talk about different kinds of tools and resources that uh, help us do our job. So it's a really wonderful network. And I'm really quite honored to have served as their president for the last two years. I'm wrapping up my term at, term at the end of this year, but I'm still very much involved in the association. 
So that's a little bit about me. Amazing. And I'm curious. I mean, I often say that I'm an accidental fundraiser as well. So I love that you, I love that you shared that. I'm curious, like when you first started fundraising, maybe before you had all the tools that you have today, what were some of the biggest challenges that you found in fundraising or what were some of the roadblocks that you felt like you were hitting where you were like, there's got to be a solution to this or a different way to do this that maybe today you do have tools around, but I'm just curious to hear a little bit of your historical experience there. Of course. So, I mean, on the technological front, a lot has changed over the last decade and a half. So when I started, Google was my main tool, plus a number of subscription resources that would aggregate information. I would kind of create my own too. I used spreadsheets to track things that I could search in my own documents. And that was really what I relied on. The CRM or database environment was a lot different as well. At the time, you know, the the databases were anything from Microsoft Access to an Excel spreadsheet to sort of rudimentary CRM. But what we're seeing today with the products that are on the market is very, very different. And it makes it a lot easier to um, track and store information. But at the time when I started, I think one of the main roadblocks, which remains challenging for many people in this field, is being that intermediary between a very outgoing frontline major gift fundraisers and event planners Mm -hmm. and plan giving officers and IT. So in prospect research, you tend to Mm -hmm. try to use all the tools at your disposal, but you bring a critical analysis to it because you might have many people in our profession, like myself, I have a background in information science. Some might have computer science Mm -hmm. or math or economics background to be able to understand a little bit how these uh, systems and tools work and to translate that to those who need it to make sure that we're getting the right information. So when I started, you know, getting the information was maybe the biggest challenge and finding ways to collect it and 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 bring it together. Fast forward today and I have almost the opposite problem. <laughs> there is so much information <laughs> out there and it is so accessible. But the quality of the information mm. and the veracity of the information often is questionable or lacks content. So as an information professional, mm. which is really how I view myself, it's my job to understand what the tools are, how they're used, where they're where they come from and to provide that important context to make sure that we are operating on the best intelligence. Okay, so can you can you talk about that a little bit? What does that mean in terms of like we have too much information but the quality of that information is really really varies. Can you give us some examples of what you mean by that? Sure. So for example, you know, we've had the proliferation of social media which has really impacted mm. our research. On the one hand, it's it's helpful because it allows us to connect with each other, allows fundraisers to connect with people, it allows people to tell their stories the way they want to on their platforms, and they can you know they can choose their privacy settings and things like that. So often, the information that's publicly available, what people are declaring themselves. That being said, people will often curate their own stories. So that is one area. The other area is just we have a proliferation of media available through searching. And some of the search tools we use are designed so that we get what we are looking for and not necessarily what we need to find out. So for example, if you go to Google, which is most people's go-to search engine, uh, you might find the information, but you might get 500,000 or a million or 5 million results on your search term. And the first page of results might be what you think you're looking for. But if you go through those results or you refine them, or you look at the source, or you look at the dates, you might actually notice that you are missing some important context. So one of 
what we call the Google filter bubble sort of became well known. People who do prospect research had to really be careful about like where we're getting our information from. Is it truthful? Is it uh, verifiable? And everything we do is coming from a mindset of, you know, being, like I said, truthful, but also being honest to the donors who support our organizations, the people who are involved in being truthful to our organizations themselves. So we want to be very careful about how we curate and disperse information. At any time, a donor to our organization who has information collected on them can request to see what information you have. So it would be very embarrassing to have something that wasn't true or wasn't verified collected on them. I, I certainly wouldn't want that for myself. So those are some of the examples I can think of. Another example is sometimes we get information that is dated, but we can still see it or it has been changed and maybe it's missing from a website or the website has changed. So we have to kind of go back and find where that information came from. So those are just some examples. Okay, so what do you think before, I wanna talk specifically about the type of prospecting tool that you're using now, the AI, the AI tool that you're using. Can you just tell me from your sort of information science background, what do you think about this explosion of AI? Like how does AI fit into, into and how should it fit into how we think about technology solutions for our nonprofits? I think that is the question of the day. And I'm by no means an expert on artificial <laughs> intelligence or machine learning. I'm learning as much as everyone else is. I do, uh, as a general rule, I tend to have a very positive and open approach to new technology. But like with anything, I hope that as a species, humans are able to <laughs> use that technology for good. So like with any new tech, and I think like, maybe AI and machine learning is going to be like the when we started getting the internet, I'm old enough to remember getting the internet or <laughs> hearing about the internet and then dialing into the internet. So the speed at which information travels now is nothing short of revolutionary. So I do appreciate that AI and machine learning can be another wave of technology that's going to dramatically change the world. That being said, we don't know enough about AI to really be able to make predictions. There are experts who are working on this, but generally speaking, it is everything from a real tool that's going to change the way we work to a lot of buzz without too much content behind it. So when I think about artificial intelligence, we are using it already, whether we know it or not, beyond chat GPT. Sometimes we realize we are using it, sometimes we don't. And sometimes products may be marketed to us as being AI powered without really much explanation as to what that means. But essentially mm. what we're doing is we're helping machines do our thinking and processing faster for us in this kind of work. So I'm really excited to see what kind of automations we can do, what kind of learning we can do from our own databases that are going to help, that will help us fundraise better. Of course, one of the big questions I have, and I don't have an answer to this yet, is how are we going to do fundraising better and have artificial intelligence help us to fundraise better without replicating some of the biases and mistakes that we humans have been making for mm. decades. So with this in mind, when I listen to experts and when I look at the tools coming out, I want to know how this is going to do things better for us and allow people like me to do the critical thinking and reflecting while we automate certain tasks and catch those mistakes. Um, we know there's a lot of criticism already that's out in the field about, you know, bias that is inherent in data sets. That's something mm -hmm. that we'll have to look out for fundraising. That's a big red flag for me. Yeah. Okay. So tell me a little bit about your experience you use currently with, with your organization, iWave, to help you with your prospecting. So talk to me a little bit about 
how that works, what you use it for, and how it allows you to see data, individual data and data sets that you might not be able to see alone? Yeah, that's a great question. So iWave has long been one of the favorite and standard tools that I've used as a researcher. And iWave has adapted Mm. with the times as well. So the iWave I used when I started in prospect research is different from the product you see today. Even if the interface Mm. or that that page that you land on when you log in hasn't changed all that much, what's happening behind the content has changed because as, as a software company, they have to adapt to the changes that are happening around us. So in terms of how I use it, mm. iWave is an aggregator. It brings through, it brings in data sets together and helps analyze that data or like report on that data when I do search. So I can do a reactive search on a company, on an individual, on a foundation. It also allows me to see where I might find similar things to what I'm looking for. So if I'm looking for a foundation that wants to support, say, women in STEM, I might look at, do a search uh, in iWave that will aggregate from all these sources information on similar actors. So that's what I'll use to find new leads, to find new partners for our organizations, to talk about what funding opportunities might be there, and to talk about who's funding what if I need to do a bit of an environmental scan as part of a fundraising project. The other thing it will do is it will do some analysis so if you if you input some data of your own from your own organization, it will analyze based on criteria that you can manipulate a little bit yourself as well to tell you what you need to be paying attention to, for example, in a fundraiser's portfolio. So if I have a major gift file and I have three fundraisers and we have a few hundred prospects between them to help us prioritize that work and maybe to tell us a little bit more about them, it streamlines the work and it helps me look at who I need to be focusing on to support our fundraisers doing outreach. So as a tool, it's really just using data and like doing some of the processing so that I can access it. And it's invaluable. If I didn't have iWave, everything would take me several hours. That takes me several minutes. Okay. Yeah. You said that word like prioritize. And that was going to be my next question is like, how much time does it save you to use a tool like that? And I'm curious, I mean, you've been using it. It's interesting because you've been using it as the tool has been adapting. And so you've been sort of adapting and growing with it. Have you had experiences trying to onboard new folks into the tool and into the software. And I'm curious sort of, I'm curious sort of what you think about from a tech adoption side of things. Like what are people's biggest fears first using a tool like that? And what have been some things that have eased people into being open to use a tool like that? I mean, I know even some of the standard language we hear around tools like that, like like wealth screenings or things like that, people have really strong reactions to and it can create a lot of discomfort. And so I'm just curious how you've navigated that both for yourself, but maybe for other team members who have been newer to to this space. That's a great question, Mallory. I mean, it varies. So when uh, just anecdotally, I've noticed that sometimes there are generational differences and sometimes cultural differences in our approach to information, especially personal information. So for example, when I've worked with organizations where people are from countries like, like, for example, European countries where information access is a little bit more limited, 
than say in Canada, they're surprised at how much we can know about an individual, even though it's publicly available information, it's just aggregated. If I talk with someone who's from a more open um, information society, for example, an American, they tend to understand that yes, more information is publicly available that you can find things out. So on, on one hand, that that's kind of a first hurdle. So I do assure people, you know, I'm a, a professional, I'm not a snoop, I'm not a spy, <laughs> I'm not a wizard, although sometimes people seem to think I am when I come up with a result from, you know, a search in iWave, this is all available information. Our data is out there. And I think like as younger generations come in, they they have an expectation of data being available and then curated, the an experience curated for them. Whereas people from a, a sort of a pre-internet age, they, ex, they have a higher expectation of privacy. And again, I'm making wild generalizations here, but this is just anecdotally the, the trend I've noticed. So with that in mind, if I have a, a researcher coming on board, usually they come from other uh, information jobs. This is nothing new to them. They're they're pretty happy to navigate databases. They're very comfortable with it. For people who are from a like a relationship fundraising background, so they're major gift officers, they're development directors, they're executive leaders, whose focus is leadership and relationship management. They don't tend to tinker too much with these uh, databases. Sometimes there is a risk of getting overexcited, <laughs> to be honest. Mm-hmm. We can't find out everything. We can't know everything. We can only know what's available. People can manage what's available to a certain extent about their information, especially high profile individuals. Uh, you know, we have to take a critical approach to everything. So sometimes I, I do try to temper what we find a little bit. Like just because we found helpful information doesn't mean it's ready for publication. You know, we have to analyze it a little bit more. Generally speaking, most fundraisers really like this tool as well because it is easy to use. Generally speaking, you just put in someone's name, you can add their location and or, you know, put in their company name or their foundation name, and you can very easily find out key information. So, for example, if you want to know about a large family foundation, for example, the Gates Family Foundation, you know, you might be able to find their financials quickly and their trustees and their website and contact information. And that's really satisfying. And then the list of where they've given. Others may get a little confused at it if they uh, are using a common name. So it's it's easy if you don't have context or you haven't verified something to trip up and have individual who shares a name or shares an address with another individual and it could be easy to get them confused. So you do have to bring in some critical analysis. Generally speaking, though, people really like it. It's very easy to use. It's pretty accessible for anyone, regardless of their level of information and digital and technological savviness. Okay, I really appreciate that breakdown there. And um, I think that's really helpful in terms of folks thinking about their own, their own, dipping their own toe into tools like that. I'm curious, you know, another thing I feel like we hear a lot when it comes to tech is, I love that you said, like, I'm not a snoop, you know, one is just like the, the creepiness sometimes it feels around like all the data that's out there about us. And, but then I think there's this other side of things where, especially for those frontline fundraisers or the more relationship oriented fundraisers, there's also this feeling of like, the more tech heavy I get, the less relationship based I will become. And I really see, I mean, you're in a position and in a shop that has 
a separate kind of prospect research entity. There's a lot of small nonprofits where the same person who is that frontline fundraiser going to the meetings is also doing the prospecting work beforehand. And so in my opinion, I always think about technology like this being helping give us more time to do the human work, just to your point before around, around prioritization. But I'm curious, like, how have you seen that navigated in ways that have been really empowering for frontline, frontline fundraisers where they don't think that the tech or the automations or those pieces are in conflict with their real relationships, but are actually supporting their ability to create them. One of my go-to comparisons is the movie Moneyball. So Mm. it's a bit of an older movie. Jonah Hill, Brad Pitt are in this movie. And this is often, actually, I saw the movie when I was a new prospect researcher, and I thought, this is what's going on. It explains things perfectly. So in this film, we have uh, these scouts, baseball scouts, who are looking for talent. And then we have a mathematician who wants to analyze statistics about players to predict who will be the next great player that they can acquire for their team. The team is the Oakland A's, and they want to acquire the next best baseball player, but for minimal investment at first so that their team can be more successful. And some of the scouts are highly skeptical. What is this math nerd doing talking about predictive modeling and analytics and looking at people's heart rates and are like different statistics that uh, they aren't used to. They come from a, uh, maybe a more emotional side relying on their intuition and they're proven largely wrong. <laughs> so Obviously, this movie is biased towards the power of data, but I do find that over-reliance on our intuition does lead to over-reliance on our internal biases. We all have them. Researchers have them too. We have confirmation bias where we think something about something and we'll research every point that we can find to prove that that uh, idea when we're maybe ignoring other generations. It's not a criticism. It's something we all have. So I find that people who rely on that relationship development, they feel more confident when they have information, but they don't need to know everything about a person all the time or in advance of their first meeting. You know, we can only find out as researchers what people have chosen to share or unwillingly shared because it's in the public realm. People have matters of the heart that they keep to themselves. People have um, interpersonal things and very personal things that they keep to themselves and they will choose to to share what they want with that relationship manager. So I think the best advice I have for fundraisers and what I've seen fundraisers do that helps them succeed is knowing where to prioritize, where to understand where their best prospects are, and then work on the relationship. So, and they can always come back and ask me, you know, is there a, you know, for partnering with company, is there a reputational risk? Is there something we need to know? Make sure that, you know, everything is above board. That's fine. But I think you can still form an authentic relationship while knowing something, but you don't need to know everything and you never will. So I've had fundraisers have high expectations of the information that they can access on somebody. And they'll say, well, why don't you look and look them up and see what you can find? Well, we can't find that information. That is not public information, but you should talk to the person about this because something has indicated that they have an interest or an affinity or a passion for this project. So that's kind of where I find that balance. And the most successful fundraisers understand that overall humans are not all that different. We are kind of predictable and the data will help us surface leads. 
and that they do have good intuition, but they shouldn't over rely on it because they risk having their biases come to the forefront. And an example of this would be you have a philanthropist who's very, very engaged with your organization's work, very passionate about it. But, you know, if you invite them to the gala, they will show up in their jeans. They're not dressy. They don't drive an expensive car. Some of our wealthiest donors I've ever seen have taken the subway to come to a meeting. So we have these assumptions that we make about what makes someone a wealthy person or a philanthropist. And we risk losing people who could be really great partners for organizations by letting our biases about what a philanthropist looks like cloud our judgment. Um, that being said, once... Once your researcher and once your data has shown you that someone is is ready to be engaged, then use all those skills and develop a relationship with them. I love that. What's something, okay, if somebody was listening to this and they're like, okay, I'm curious uh, about trying, you know, a prospecting tool like iWave, what would be like your recommendation in terms of how they go about figuring out if they're ready for adoption of a tool like that? Of course. I mean, for some organizations, you know, I understand budgets are small. There's a high level of risk aversion. You know, we have to be very careful uh, stewards of our funds. So I would advise that if you can get a tool to help make things easier, then it's worthwhile investment. So having something is good for you. You can usually start with a free trial. If someone won't offer you a free trial, I would find that highly suspicious. You should at least get a few runs to to see if it works for your organization. The second is go with someone who is well-respected within the community. You know, there are startups that, you know, every time I go to a conference, I see new new partners. It's really exciting. I want to learn more about them. But if this is your first four I maybe stick with someone who's been in the game for a little while who understands the industry. If they they don't offer any kind of sliding scale pricing, that's suspicious to me. But try a trial period, see if that works. Talk to the person, ask for training. Tools like iWave, you know, they're really easy to use, but you know, some there are some parts that you know can be a little bit confusing. They do great training. So ask for a training session, try it out. If you're still not sure, ask someone who knows. So if you're an organization in North America or the UK, you I know there are prospect researchers around. So ask your APR chapter <laughs> or in the UK, it's researchers in fundraising mm-hmm. or APR International, which is based in the US, Australia, New Zealand as well. Ask someone who's from one of those organizations what they use. And you, know, you can show up at a conference if you're at one, go see the vendors, meet with them, and they'll tell you about all their, their products. Again, like I said earlier, um, the term AI, artificial intelligence, it's kind of becoming a buzzword. So ask them how they use AI to power their tools. So if, if a partner or a provider is not able to explain that, maybe that's a, a question mark for you that you should investigate further. Okay, that is so helpful. And I really appreciate you walking folks through that. Is there any question I didn't ask you that I should have asked you that you want to leave folks with? And otherwise, I just want to thank you so much for sharing your time and wisdom with us today. Oh, it's absolutely been my pleasure. Uh, I love talking about research. As you can see, I get really excited when I talk about data and information. And, you know, everything, if I revisit this podcast, you know, two years from now, everything I've said will be completely different. So 
Um, uh, I can't wait to see the f- what the future holds. I really hope that if uh, anyone is considering using some automation and, and helping them with their fundraising, that they do it and they ask for help if they need it. And I just think to everyone who's listening to this podcast, you're doing such great work for your organizations. And it's just such a privilege to talk about this. Yeah, thank you. And we'll make sure for folks who are particularly interested in using the tool that you're using and um, that you were talking about iWave, we'll have the link for that in the comments um, around this as well. Of so course. thank you so much, Catherine, um, for your time. I'm so grateful. Uh, my pleasure. And if anyone needs to get in touch with me, I'm happy. I'm always available. You can find me on LinkedIn. And you know, if anyone has any questions, I'm, I'm happy to to answer those. And if, if you do choose to go with iWave, I don't get any um, benefits of advertising for them at all. It's a <laughs> genuine, uh, genuine fondness for the um, the software, but also for the people who are, are running it. So uh, I hope if you choose to go with iWave that you'll get to work with a really wonderful um, contact person there. Yeah, they're such a great team. It's so true. Yeah. And it makes such a such a difference. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you, Mallory. I hope today's episode inspired or challenged you to think differently. For additional takeaways, tips, show notes, and more about our amazing guests and sponsors, head on over to MalloryErickson.com backslash podcast. And if you didn't know, hosting this podcast isn't the only thing I do. Every day I coach, guide, and help fundraisers and leaders just like you inside of my program, The Power Partners Formula Collective. Inside the program, I share my methods, tools, and experiences that have helped me fundraise millions of dollars and feel good about myself in the process. To learn more about how I can help you, visit MalloryErickson.com backslash power partners. Last but not least, if you enjoyed this episode, I'd love to encourage you to share it with a friend you know would benefit or leave a review. I'm so grateful for all of you and the good hard work you're doing to make our world a better place. I can't wait to see you in the next episode. Hey you, I hope you're loving all the free value you're getting right now from our guest. And speaking of free value, I've raised millions in the nonprofit space without sacrificing my integrity or my alignment. And I'm sharing how I did it in my free webinar, how to harness the power of prioritization to raise more without burning out. Go to MalloryErickson.com backslash workshop to register for the free training right now. I cannot wait to see you there.